All right, let's talk about Sacred Ground. I was really worried about this episode. I thought this was going to be another Chakotay episode, and it was not a Chakotay episode. It was not a Chakotay episode. That's very true. And uh, it also seems to me that Chakotay has become a completely different person uh, than he was in the (laughs) previous season. That seems to be something that's happening a lot, which we will talk about. I I surprisingly enjoyed this episode more than I thought I would. I still don't think it's a great episode, but if this is the level of quality of, all right, this is an episode of Star Trek Voyager, I think I'm okay with that. I think I agree with you. Yeah, this is not, again, I found the first few episodes of this season very troubling. Um, I think they, I, I would have been better if they had just, you know, forgotten a bunch of stuff or not dealt with that, but... At this point, if this is the level, if this is what Voyager really is, that's fine. I just, you know, I keep going back to what you initially said where they didn't want to have the, you know, they they had the caretaker as a way of getting the characters back into the Alpha Quadrant. Um, and certainly Future's End could also have a way of getting them back into the Alpha Quadrant in Episode 2. Uh, and there's ten other ways we could get them into the Alpha Quadrant I mean, this week is really making me ask, why the hell haven't they done that? Because they want to so badly. I I think that's a really good question, and I'm totally with you. Because, you know, what what I'm really noticing about this season so far is the, the fact that really none of these episodes, except for perhaps False Prophets, because that did deal with directly with something about the Delta Quadrant, could have just as easily taken place in the Alpha Quadrant. And, you know, if the two-parter season ender for season two was them getting home and then season three was them just going, all right, well, we're flying around the Alpha Quadrant now investigating things, I don't think that the show would be fundamentally any different than it is right now. No, and I don't know if I would have a problem with that, I think. Um, These two episodes especially, I like very much as just... Here's this. They're, they're, these two are really good TNG episodes, and if they want to do TNG with a different cast, that's not a terrible thing. Right. I, I think that that's really what I'm coming around to is the idea that they didn't want to make this show. Yeah. And, you know, they, 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 Star Trek Voyager, I think, probably has the most high concept concept of any of the star trek shows i mean except for maybe star trek discovery which we'll find out about in in a few weeks or two weeks i guess yeah but in in terms of voyager it really does seem to me like michael pillar was the one that was really pushing them to deal with a lot of the questions around the actual you know concept of the show and you know he was the one that was kind of pushing them to deal with the maquis he was the one that was pushing them to deal with um, them getting home and the, the, the dangers of being in the Kazon, uh, you know, the dangers of being alone, Federation ship in, in, in an unexplored part of the galaxy, at least by by the Federation. And so far this season, what we've had is, um, you know, six episodes, eight episodes that 
have really been TNG episodes. I mean, this episode starts out with them saying, we're taking a few days ashore leave yeah. on this random planet. And, and you know, my first note was, wow, they really don't care about getting home anymore, do they? Yeah. Because um, they're just, like, randomly deciding to stay on a planet for, like, a week for no reason other than we need some shore leave. Which particularly makes the swarm... Uh Worse because, again, we can't wait a week to fix this. We can't wait 15 months. We're going to fuck off for a week and have shore leave. Like, that would have, the swarm would have been a perfect shore leave time. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, you know, what, what I what I think we're going to find is that viewed in isolation, these episodes are very strong. Mm-hmm. And we will obviously talk about Sacred Ground in, in a minute. Um, but just let us vamp some more about the concept of the show. Uh, that... These episodes taken in isolation, I think, are, are are good, but I am starting to come around to the idea that Star Trek Voyager is the first Star Trek show that is less than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, that taken on an episode by episode basis, these are really good or or sometimes okay, but the show is not internally consistent from episode to episode anymore. And I think in the first se- first and second season, you can say a lot of things about the first and second season of Star Trek Voyager, but I think that they were going for consistency from episode to episode, and I don't think they care about that anymore. I think yeah. there's a lack of care and a lack of attention to detail in these in these episodes on a on a episode to episode basis that bothers me as a as a person who likes that sort of thing. But if you're just watching this television, and the thing is, like, there's no reason why you can't have that attention to detail because TNG was yes. structurally almost exactly the same as, as the third season of Voyager so far. But they also had attention to detail and they had um, internally consistent things that were going on, whereas Voyager does not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting DS9 anymore, but I'm not getting TNG. And I guess that's part of the. Again, while I like the individual episodes, the fact that they felt like t- good TNG episodes, I would rather hang out with the TNG crew. I, I And I, I, I guess that's a big problem here. Yeah. Well, I don't think that there's... They haven't done the work to make these yeah. characters interesting. Um, I mean, certainly I think... I, I There are characters that I find interesting in the show. I think I like the Doctor. You like the Doctor. Um, I like Janeway. Yeah. I think she's a good character. And I think that she's interesting. And, and this is obviously a Janeway episode. And it says a lot about Janeway as a character. Although I don't know if they remember that this happens later on. But okay. Um, I'd love uh, to cook with Neelix sometime. I think that would be fun. Like it would be great to spend an evening with. I like Cass. I like Bellana when she's there. But the rest of the characters, do I care? Not really. Yeah. Like if Tom Paris, Chakotay, Harry Kim all disappeared next week, would I necessarily give a shit? No, I wouldn't. And and here's a big problem with season three so far is that we have a lot of Harry Kim and Tom Paris and all of that. And yes, some Balan and stuff like that. But they scuttled the Doctor in that one episode. And we're going to have to talk about the fact that Kess has had like maybe five lines in the entire season so far. Yeah, that that is true, and and I think next week, um, yeah, next week there's a cast episode, so that that okay. will be rectified to some degree. But at some point, and I don't know, maybe this is the time to talk about this. I maybe we're avoiding the episode, but I want to talk about what's going on. What the hell is going on with Kess and her actress? 
Okay. Because, I mean, in the first two seasons, I would say, I, I don't know the circumstances in which she left the show. I I was saying in the first two seasons, like, this doesn't feel like a Diane Crosby situation where, you know, she's bored, her character isn't doing anything, nothing's happening, she's not getting episodes. Kess was getting a lot of episodes, and... Now this season, they're forgetting about her. I mean, this would have been a perfect opportunity to give Kess some scenes in this episode. Have her have a vision quest while she's in this coma. And, I mean, Kess has this great theme inherent to her of, you know, she wanted to leave home. She wanted more than she was uh, initially given. She left the safety and comfort of what she knew for the dangers and the excitement and adventures, but... She is also still dealing with the fact that she does miss her home and she does miss what she is. And I mean, I get the sense that at some point Kess is going to say, all right, I've journeyed enough. Now I need to go back and, you know, share what I've learned with my people. That's that's what my arc is. And they don't care about that. So I don't know if they're doing this because like, is this at the point when the actress is realizing, all right, They've forgotten about my character. I'm going to move on to something more interesting. Or do they hate her? Or what's going on? <laughs> I I think that... I mean, well, it's a little premature to talk about this, but we'll talk about it anyway. Uh, I think you're reading too much into it. I think that there's a little... You know, you're looking for motivations mm. that perhaps are not there. Um, I just don't think that Jerry Taylor necessarily cares that much about... Yeah character development frankly and i don't think she cares about serving all of the characters um the the thing about Kess and the reason why uh Kess left the show and the reason why uh, jennifer lean left the show and you know i've heard this story a lot in my time as a trekkie i don't know if it's necessarily true but i've heard it from various people so i yeah would assume it is true unless someone comes to me and says it isn't that they wanted to shake the show up in the fourth season. I don't think that they knew yet that they were going to do it, but they certainly knew it by sort of the latter part of the third mm-hmm. season that they wanted to do something with the Borg and they wanted to bring in a, a, a you know a Borg character. And so, the show already had the largest ensemble cast of any yeah. Star Trek show. It, it, there's nine main cast members. That's a lot of main cast members. And to bring another one in, I think they just knew that they had to get rid of one of their cast members. But why wasn't and it Harry ori- Kim? <laughs> well, that, yes, oh. the, originally it was going to be him. Okay, because he's the most disposable, really. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> and, and here is, I think... You you could I, I I think you'll know exactly the spirit in which I intend this intend this comment. Uh, what I have heard and what I have read from various sources over the years is that it was going to be Garrett Wong. They were going to Garrett Wang. They were going to fire him, uh, and they did not because he was uh, he made the the People magazine's fifty sexiest people alive. <laughs> I am completely okay. serious about that, that that is how because this was a network no, show. No, right. No. And I think that if this had still been a syndicated show, I think the decision would have been stuck with to fire Garrett Wang. But because he got this publicity in People magazine oh, yeah. at the time, I think the network were like, hey, we can't fire this guy because he's in People magazine and that's helping the show. So instead, they went with Jennifer Lean. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that was the right choice. 
And she also has had a very rough time in her life in the past uh, few years. I, I'm not laughing because no, no, no. Um, of that reason. I'm laughing because uh, it's, I don't know, it's just sad. I, I would say, and didn't the but, actress who played Seven of Nine have some troubles too? Um, no, I don't think so. No. She's fine, oh. as far as I know. Um, she was married to uh, some Republican politician for a while okay, or something. Okay, maybe that's, maybe that's what, what you're thinking of. I knew one of the cast members of... Uh, Voyager then did go on to have I, I I feel like it was drinking problems or some kind of mental illness or something. Well Jennifer Jennifer Lean is I think who you're thinking okay. of because she's got some mental illness mm-hmm. and it's very sad and, and okay. she doesn't seem to be um getting the, the help that she needs. Um and she, I think oh, there, there also were some drug issues there as well. She she basically stopped acting after this and she like moved to the south somewhere. Um which is a shame because I think she's actually yeah. she's probably one of the best like actors on the show frankly at least you know who knows because maybe uh, uh maybe garrett wang is great i don't know but he's yeah. not given enough to do so we don't really yeah, know yeah, yeah. what he's capable of um and yeah you're right like in this sense i think that that you know maybe it's time to finally talk about i know the it's bad because, when we avoid but <laughs> well i don't know that there's really much to say about the episode but we'll you know we'll get to that is uh, this is obviously a Janeway episode, and the fact that it's Kess that is in this coma is completely incidental. It could have been anybody, you know, and I yeah. think that's why Kess doesn't really have anything to do in this episode because it doesn't matter that it's Kess. Uh, what what matters is that one of Janeway's crew is is in this precarious health situation, and the only way that Janeway can help them is to go on this vision quest. Well, it does, again, it is nice that Again, what I see about the th- of the theme of Kess is wanting to go out, but it, you know there may be a line of. I mean, that was certainly the point of the psychic fire episode that there are that if she goes too far on a certain journey, danger will happen, and that's exactly what happens. She's curious about this shrine. She goes in and she gets hurt by it. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I think at least in that sense, as on a character motivation level, it makes sense. But that really seems like they threw a dartboard and they hit Kess's section and, you know, it just happens that they – like, it, it, it doesn't seem like that went into the factor. All right, well, who's going to have the most symbolic, you know, use out of this predicament? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's the case at all. But but then aside from that, I mean, what, what do you make of this episode? I mean, you know, Janeway is a character yeah. that – I think has probably had the most consistent. Well, I, I say that even though it hasn't been all that consistent, but she she's had like at least one strong through line in her character, which is that she is a scientist yeah. that, you know, she looks at the world in a rational way. She is very devoted to science. And now she is grappling with, you know, having to essentially surrender her worldview um, in this episode. Yeah, I mean, what I like about this is that it does work with a lot of kind of spiritual vision quest cliches. Again, I, based on the title, I thought, oh, God, this is going to be another Chakotay episode. I don't know if they've fired that fake consultant at this point, but uh, I was really worried that that's where they would go with it. And so, first of all, they have this brief conversation at the beginning where he says, oh, I learned the science behind the vision quest and it was disappointing even though this is a man who proudly showed off his uh peyote machine in the first episode um and yet and also incidentally not to cut you off but but chakotay has an office when did that happen (laughs) anyway well uh probably when Suter died they had his extra quarters and chakotay figured all right well we're not gonna need this Uh, there you go but i do very much buy janeway as somebody who does believe that 
you know, even if we don't know all the answers now, there is no God of the gaps. It's just places that science hasn't gotten to yet. And given a long enough timeline, we will eventually learn every mystery. We will be able to understand every 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 mystery of that. And so she goes on this vision quest and she knows everything to do because she's read up about vision quests and she's you know, it's it, it's because, I mean, you can read about different initiations and rituals, and here's how the Mason's ritual worked and all of that, and here – or even clo- even more uh, contemporary, we can read about all the arcane questions Google asks in order to get a job there and stuff like that. And, I mean, you, you get the sense that, well, really every spiritual test has an answer, and someone's figured that out, and if we look hard enough, we can figure it out, and that is very much – going to be Janeway's view of this. There's a problem I can solve. I'll crack the books. I'll look at it. And eventually I'll chip away and figure it out. And she so confidently goes through the first part of the test where she knows everything to do. And this is going to be easy. And it may be physically uncomfortable. It may be grueling. But I know pretty much what to do. And that's it. And I've got an enlightened. And I, I can go through the thing. And this is great. And to find that there is this other layer, even when... I mean, in the end of the episode, they do come up with the scientific explanation for why everything worked. And, you know, the doctor does understand that science has shown a light into her experience. And yet, I mean, you're left at the end with the sense that she finds that all very convenient. And the fact that all of these stars kind of aligned in a very specific way for Kess to be cured in this way suggests maybe to Janeway that there is some kind of larger design to this that she can't comprehend that she can't understand and yeah because because I think that, that that what I what I think about it is that what it really strikes me as is this sort of very Buddhist idea that the beginning of knowledge is, mm-hmm. is admitting what you do not know and that you know Janeway is someone who you know, isn't real. Like she will admit what she doesn't know, but, but she doesn't go far enough with that because she is so devoted to the scientific method and the rationality of it that even though she doesn't know things, she thinks she can figure them out. Or she can say, you know, well, maybe I personally, you know, Catherine Janeway don't know this, but somebody does and can know this. And, you know, as a collective whole, we know this. Yeah. But I, but I, and I think that there's a way that that could have, gone really wrong Mm. right i think if this had been one of the reasons why i think this episode works is that it is a little bit of a subversion of the type of episode that you think it's going to be yeah and and because janeway thinks it's going to be this thing it is you know you you kind of like get uh you get what you put into it in a sense and janeway thinks that it's this very strange thing and it's a test and she's got to do all this stuff and get you know bitten by the snake or whatever and you know and all this kind of stuff and that's not what the point of any of this is yeah um and Janeway does realize that but she perhaps realizes it too late I don't know I I I think the too lateness is is important for the realization because at the beginning I mean she's not going through this for enlightenment at first is she she's going because she needs a cure for Kess, and we're going to be able to scientifically analyze that. I mean, it's almost it's 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 it, it, it skirts the line into underhanding and cheating that she has this 
you know, she has an implant that she's going to record all of the data and we're going to figure it out and have everybody understand this situation. And it's, I mean, I love the, I love the woman who's the spirit guide in this because she very much like is treating Janeway like a kid who's obviously cheating on the test. And okay, we're going to let you get away with it and then let you fall on your ass when it turns out you didn't actually learn this. You just passed the test. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's 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 a, it's a very sort of um uh you know, didactic thing, I guess, where she's memorizing everything yeah. but she's not really retaining or understanding any well, of it. Well, it's yeah, it's the difference between like, you know, studying for the SATs. Well, you learn the tricks, you learn the ways of elimination. You're not actually learning the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And I I think the guide is is obviously, you know, yeah. It, it, that's an interesting character as well, because I, I think that, that, again, why the episode works so well is that it is a subversion of everything that you expect from this sort of, you know, vision quest episode. The the kind of stuff that makes a Chakotay episode a little bit uh, a little bit tiresome, it, you know, is, is working for this episode because, you know, the guide is sarcastic. The guide is sort of like, yeah, whatever. Um, the guide is also played by by the woman who played one of the moms on Freaks and Geeks. Uh, oh, so yeah. This has been a good week for guest stars, and we will talk about that in a minute. But yes, we will. Um, but I, but I think that what it really comes down to is that, in a certain sense, you know, I don't think that this episode is entirely successful at yeah. doing that. Of course, because it, it does. It just, just structurally, I think it, it gets a little bogged down in the last. 15 minutes or so where it basically runs out of steam yeah, and, and, and repeats itself in a way. Right. And, and yes, that's part of the point of the episode, but it's also a little boring to watch, frankly. And it also does sort of fall into some of the same pitfalls that any story about religious or spiritual enlightenment does, which is that uh, a television character experiencing spiritual enlightenment is not spiritual enlightenment. And therefore we, as the viewers, are left in a, in a you know, it, the, the realizations that Janeway has at the end of this are almost cliches in their way, even though they are these yeah. profound truths to her, because a show can only express so much profundity in a way, uh, just by its very nature. I mean, the nature of spiritual enlightenment, as the episode makes clear, is something that is ineffable and can't be quantified. And so it is just going to be lost when we're writing it down. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I I think you see that most clearly in the in the in you know in the elderly room with the three old yeah. people sitting around and George Costanza's you know, again, mom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I was about to say like, <laughs> it's George Costanza's mom. Um, that I don't know what the hell was going on this week, but man, I'll tell you, they got a lot of weird guest stars. I mean, was um, this the point where like people thought Voyager was the cool show? Because I mean, I I. I I know why a lot of people wanted to be, for example, on TNG or something like that. But is this something that, oh, it would be fun to be on a Star Trek kind of thing? I I don't know. And and I've been debating whether or not I should tell you about this. But I think tell I me. will. Now you have um, to. There, there is an episode in, in, in a couple seasons that uh, features a guest appearance uh, by uh, The Rock. Oh. Um. So and this maybe was, I don't know. This was during the height, I guess, of his wrestling career, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like when he was transitioning from wrestling to, I guess, legitimate acting, mm. quote unquote. Um, but hmm. yeah, so there. Do with that information what you will. Okay. Uh, but this show does use well-known guest stars, yeah, 
more than the Star Trek shows that have come before Iggy Pop and DS9 notwithstanding. Yeah. And of course, DS9 also put Iggy Pop into Cardassian makeup. So it's very possible that a lot of people didn't even realize that mm-hmm. that was Iggy Pop. I would say Whoopi Goldberg in TNG probably, you know, and she wasn't quite a guest star in her way, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there is there, there is that indication, I think, as well. But I don't know. I think maybe the last thing to talk about, um, you know, before we move on to Future Zen, because I'm very excited to talk <laughs> about Future Zen for a lot of reasons, uh, is I feel like, you know, we talk, we started out this episode talking sort of about how we feel about Star Trek Voyager as a whole. And I feel like this episode is doing a disservice to Chakotay's character in a way, you know, he is playing a role that I don't think makes a lot of sense mm. for him in this episode. He is dismissive of the idea of Janeway doing this, which doesn't make any sense because he has been portrayed as someone who is very spiritual. This is be- Chakotay has become 16 year old Chakotay, who we saw on Tattoo, was mm-hmm. very skeptical, thought this was stupid, and. After the loss of his father and as he grew up, it, he, that's when he began to understand the spiritual underpinning. I mean, I see Chakotay as somebody who is relatively new to the spiritual ways of his people and all of that. And so I, 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 I think it's more interesting for Chakotay to be somebody who is both very fervent and zealous because this is new to him and yet very – and yet at the same time fairly skeptical and unsure and feeling like a little foolish. This is the thing that I spent my entire life avoiding, and now it makes sense, and I'm a little embarrassed about it. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, but but this ver- the version of Chakotay we're seeing is just, yeah, there's all these spiritual beliefs, but it's really just science happening. You can have a vision quest, but it's really a psychoactive substance you know dealing with your brain yes we can learn a lot from it it is a very good way of you know it is a tool for examining our internals but there is nothing supernatural or outside about like that that's not that doesn't seem like who Chakotay is I mean Chakotay is somebody who I, I think has had experiences like this that he can't quite explain and doesn't still doesn't quite understand and yeah you know maybe he wants to i it's not like i get the sense from this episode that he's clinging to sci- science as a way of explaining it because he's not ready to deal with certain things that he's learned but this just seems again he's that 16 year old this is stupid it's hot there's bugs well right and I, yeah i agree with you but i also think that the other part of this is it would have been very easy to, you know, shore up the episode with, you know, a scene where Chakotay is essentially maybe maybe this would have been too on the nose. I don't know. But, you know, saying, look, as I you know, I have I'm of two minds about this. Right. Like yeah. I as as a as a spiritual person, I I I. I support you doing this as, you know, the first officer, yeah. of the, you know, a Starfleet vessel. I think you should not do this because of X reasons. But, you know, it, it is a case where the show seems to forget that that is a dynamic that could be mined for dramatic purposes. Again, I don't know where the consultant is at this point, but I get the sense he has been fired by now. And in a way, maybe they're trying to overcorrect like, 
oh God, you know, all of that Chakotay's really spiritual, like maybe Chakotay himself found out that all of his spiritual beliefs were just uh, things made up by a, by a fake. And so now he's just yeah. really bitter about it and he's just totally, you know, gotten yeah. rid of all of that. That that could certainly be. All right, well, let's move on to Future's End, which I think Richard and I are both very excited <laughs> to talk about. Uh, but before we do that, I, I just want to remind you all that Trekabout is listener-supported. Um, for all of you that are giving us money every month, please uh, uh, thank you very much. Um, but if you do not, go to patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. Uh, check out our tiers and you know, give us a little bit of money. It, it does cost us money to uh, make this show, to put this show on. Um, you know, hosting fees, things of that nature. Uh, but also giving us money just, you know, makes us feel good and we like getting money. So uh, please do go to patreon.com slash show and give now. So I, I want to start out this conversation by uh, <laughs> talking about Joe Minoski. Okay. Um, he's not someone that we've talked about a lot, uh, but I think we should because he is uh, credited as one of the writers on this episode. And I wanted to wait to talk about him because, you know, he becomes a, a more of a creative force in, in the third season of Voyager and, and going forward. Mm. Um, I've he, certainly uh, was, recognized the name from various episodes. Right. Like he's been writing for the show for a while, uh, but this is the first time that he's really, uh, you know, kind of like actually a staff writer on the show. Mm. Um, he wrote False Prophets, for example. Okay. And you know he's been he's someone who's who was around Star Trek for a long time. He wrote on uh, he was on staff on TNG for a number of seasons. I mean he wrote things like um, Legacy Clues, First Contact, which is one of your favorite episodes. Oh, yeah. uh, you know he wrote Darmok. Oh, um, he wrote the Times Arrow two parter. So <laughs> okay, which, I can you know, see because this episode did have some resonances with Times Arrow and yes, I I, I can definitely see. okay. And and then he uh, he's in, he's like an interesting guy. He he like lived in L.A. was on staff for TNG, and then he decided to fuck off and move to France for a few years. Which I wish I could do that, <laughs> but he still wrote for Star Trek. He still did scripts and stuff yeah. for them, and he did a few episodes of DS Nine. Uh, I don't think he ever really got DS9 because he wrote episodes like Dramatis Personae, Rivals. He came up with the story concept for Time's Orphan. So, you know, he maybe didn't really get what DS9 was doing. Uh, but then he, he and he also wrote uh, a couple episodes of Voyager before he came back to L.A. So he wrote like um, The Thaw, for example, which okay. I think was a pretty good episode of the show. So, so he is someone who kind of like does have some creative influences on Star Trek Voyager. I just wanted to lay that out there so that you were aware of okay. that. Okay. Well, I mean, based on, I thought False Prophets was very good, and I really liked this episode. I'm really excited to see, you know, part two. And so that's not a bad thing. Again, if you you talk about they want Voyager to be an action-adventure sci-fi show— this was a fucking fantastic hour of action adventure sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in a certain sense, I, I don't even really know where to start with this episode well, because it has it moves so quickly that yeah. you don't really have like any time to think about what anything that's going on. And you know, it starts out with this thing that's happening and they get attacked by this time ship i mean we could talk about the fact that apparently the federation had time ships in the 29th century but whatever um 
and and then they just like get sucked into this vortex and they go back in time and now they're in Los Angeles in 1996 well, and you're like okay this is happening I I guess the way that I want to get into this maybe is that so the 30th anniversary episode where Tuvok is with Captain Sulu and we thought it was okay for some reason this feels like a much better 30th anniversary episode even though it doesn't have necessarily any direct ties to the TOS era, a lot of it feels a little more... It, it This feels like a greatest hits of what makes Star Trek great, right? It's got, you know, this wacky adventure time travel story. It's got the look at contemporary life that uh, Star Trek Four had, for example. It's got... Uh, the basics of the Federation incarnated in the scientist, the Sarah Silverman character who, you know, is very curious and thinks that, you know, we can be friends with aliens and all of that stuff. I don't know. This felt like Voyager hasn't always understood what makes Star Trek great, why Star Trek is a great franchise, a great thing. And this episode does this again. This felt like much more of a tribute to the spirit of it for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with you, and I, I think the reason for that, or one of the reasons for that, is, you know, if you think about it, um, aside from this episode of Voyager, this is the first time that Star Trek has done anything with uh, setting something in actual contemporary America yeah. at the time this episode was aired. Um, you know, TNG never did that. DS9 never did that. TOS was the only show and movie series that did that. You know, I mean, they did that in, um, what, uh, yesterday? No, not um uh, Tomorrow was yesterday, yeah. I think, from the first season of, of TOS, where they went back to, like, 1968 or whatever. Not exactly contemporary, but close enough. And they did that, of course, most famously in Star Trek IV. And, and now we have this episode, which very much harkens back to that kind of spirit of TOS, where it's just a fish-out-of-water kind of comedy episode, where they're dealing with contemporary America that people would recognize, and... I don't know. It works. Like it's, it's it's incredibly ridiculous. And I think that if you like, this is an episode that would not have worked in the second season of Voyager because you're already starting to mm. see how much of a different show this is. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's hilarious because this is the first time period that they've gone. You know, not only is it contemporary life and twenty years in the past for us, but this is also the first time they've gotten back to that. I remember, you know, I, I remember life in '96. So it's. It's very – I mean, they, this is a fun episode. They are concerned with everybody watching it having a good time. And you can also – I mean, this is one where it feels like the actors are having a good time too. They're enjoying doing something kind of different. Yeah, I think so because I think – well, I think they're all very excited to like be in normal clothes. And yeah. I'm sure that Tim Russ was very excited not to have to do his ears and you know stuff like that. But – uh, they changed Chakotay's hairstyle for some reason. I guess that's his 1996 hairstyle. I don't, I don't know. But there, there's something about it that is, like, incredibly goofy but yeah. charming. Oh, I yeah. mean, the scene of Neelix and Kess watching a soap <laughs> opera is is so ridiculous, but it, it links these characters. I mean, because one of the things I think that is difficult for uh, 24th century Star Trek sometimes is... The fact that a lot of the times, you know, the Roddenberry rule is in effect and, the, you know, the drama can't come from the main characters. Yeah. The drama can only come from the guest stars. And this is a little bit, you know, DS9 poked at the edges of that and things like that. But this is the case that I think it makes these characters 
feel a little bit more like people that we could recognize put into a context that yeah. we recognize very well as as real um i mean like you know tuvok and paris walking along the beach and paris like trying to convince tuvok to take his shirt off which <laughs> like i don't have a problem with but seems odd to me um stuff like that just just makes the episode seem like a little bit uh uh i don't know just fun and yeah there's it's not a hangout episode, but there are moments where the characters are just hanging out. And I think we tend to really like hangout episodes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think that the show could work if they were all hangout episodes, obviously. Yeah. But but every once in a while, it's it's ni- it's just nice to see these characters, like, enjoying each other's company in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So, one of the things that I think uh, we should we should deal with is... I don't know to what degree you you want to deal with sort of some of the more I'll call it like the 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 Star Trek world building of this episode because you know we do have the the sort of revelation that okay that's the Federation in the 29th century and it still exists and they have time ships it's like I don't know do we do we have anything to say about that not really I guess I mean I uh, it's a very linear review of history that you know the Federation will progress and be greater and bigger at every time and I I I don't nec- number one I don't necessarily subscribe to that view of history. I think history is a little more precarious than that. Um, yeah, and there, for example, the captain at one point calls you know the cop. Oh, you're a Cardassian totalitarian. Um, and let's remember where Cardassia ended up at the end of DS Nine, which is that the population was decimated. They have been humbled. They have been massacred. The Cardassian Empire is over. And so we are to believe that 500 years from now, the Cardassians will rebuild and be totalitarian again. I don't know. Obviously, DS9 had not ended at that point. But I don't know. There's so many fucking plot holes in this episode. I don't really understand what point it's trying to make about technology, for example. Like – at one point, they look, and they're just like, well, the computer revolution happened because of this time ship thing, and yet it's so – like, you don't get any sense that, for example, the Ed Begley character has parceled out the technology to what people would understand, paralleling very closely the real-world technological development. Like, why aren't people on 20th – in 1996 teleporting everywhere? Right. Yeah. Well, it's the idea that, you know, he was parceling out the technologies that the people could understand and also that he could make sense of and that his team could make sense of. Right. Like, you know, he's obviously supposed to be like a Steve Jobs character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a little difficult to talk about now that Steve Jobs is dead, but maybe not because Steve Jobs has also been dead for like six years at this point, um, which, God, is hard to believe. Oh, my God. He could also be a little Bill Gates, too. But anyway. Yeah, it's kind of like, well... He's I would a, he, disagree with I would I would there. disagree with that because the Ed Bakley character is obviously in this in the Steve Jobs mold mm. because he's a hippie. I would and just say more Bill Gates was Bill Gates was not a hippie. I would also but I would just say in 1996 which you know Bill Gates was much more prominent than Steve Jobs was, you know. I I would say uh, Steve Jobs would no, he was definitely around but you know compare 2006 which one is more notable. I would disagree with that a little bit, but I think that's probably a tangent that doesn't yeah, really yeah, matter that enough. much for the episode. Um, but anyway, so I think that, that that's one thing that I think is is interesting is you're right. Like, I don't know what this episode is trying to say about that. I don't know that it's necessarily saying anything about it. I think it's just an excuse for the plot to yeah. happen and it's excuse to have these characters back in 1996. 
okay, fine, whatever. Um, but there are elements of this episode that perhaps show a lack of care that do worry me. Like, you know, for but again, I don't care that much, but it's just something to mention because, for example, like the idea that Janeway finds temporal mechanics like difficult is something that is directly contradicted mm. by like the second episode <laughs> of the te- of the show where uh I think it was Harry Kim or Tom Paris who said something about temporal mechanics and is he making any sense? And Janeway's like, honey, no, you're not making any sense. Let me just explain temporal mechanics to you. It's very, very simple. Um, and now suddenly two years later, Janeway's yeah. like, I don't know. What is temporal mechanics? This hurts my head. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, she can certainly say, oh, God, when I was young, I swore I'd never get into this, but it keeps happening. You know, it's so much more common than they tell you, you know, and it's always horrible. I don't have as much of a problem with time travel as everybody else seems to, by the way. Like, everybody is all, time travel stories are so hard, they make no sense, paradoxes. Like, it's never bothered me, but anyway. I don't know why you don't like Doctor Who, then, because nothing about that time travel. Because it's English! (laughs) Okay. Well, I I think that, and also Doctor Who's a woman, oh my god. (laughs) Um, I think that you're right. Like, I don't necessarily, I'm not a... I'm not like I think I'm okay with time travel episodes on an infrequent basis. Mm. I don't necessarily care that if you look at them closely, they don't make a lot of sense. Like that's kind of the nature of doing a time travel episode. There's going to be paradoxes. There's going to be stuff like that. I think that the show leaning into the idea that they don't make any sense is kind of interesting. I mean, that's basically what Janeway is saying. And, you know, the idea that there's a, I don't know. I think there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of hubris here, which is that, you know, Janeway seems to be under the impression that that she can fix this because they seem to be going in that direction. But they're just making things worse. Yeah, I mean, that's the pole predestination paradox that you're going to your actions will cause the very thing that you are trying to avoid or whatever. Um, you know, that, right. that, that's kind of Greek prophecy happening. Um, well, and, and, and also, I mean, leaving aside the, the time travel stuff for a moment, like I'm a little surprised you haven't brought this up, but uh, the fact that it's 1996 and that's when the eugenics wars were supposed to happen. And, oh. like, apparently there's just like no indication of them whatsoever. Uh, uh, I assumed act- it was, I assumed it was like on the Simpsons where like Bart and Lisa's birth year just goes up by one every year and so you know you know so that way everything can be contemporary and you know we can do this and so since they're dealing with 1996 we'll know okay and actually the eugenics war happened in 2020 and you know when discovery deals with it they're gonna happen in 2040 or you know maybe 2018 as is going to happen in real life but that's a different story yeah i mean i don't necessarily have a problem with it Th- that that was actually something that they apparently talked about and they were just kind of like well we can't <laughs> we, we have to ignore the eugenics wars because that's not the point of the episode it's going to seem ridiculous if we put it in the episode even as a throwaway line because everybody knows they didn't happen uh so you just kind of have to hand wave it away and go okay well it wasn't happening in los angeles or whatever i guess i don't um, really care about the paradoxes in star trek because earth's history they don't really care about enough to be consistent. I mean, isn't the bell aren't the bell riots a couple years off only at this point too? No, no, they were like twenty. Oh. They were like thirty years in the future or okay. something. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, no, I'm with you. I don't necessarily care. I just bring it up because apparently people care about that. So well, people care about all of these things. If, so if a character has a hair out of place, they will. You know, haven't you heard about uh, Big Luke theory in Star Wars? I mean, people on the internet are horrible. Yes, they are. Let's talk about Sarah Silverman. Okay. Uh, it's very funny that we're watching this this week because uh, on our other podcast, Tuning In, we are dealing with – we watch the X-Files episode uh, DPO, uh, which features a young Giovanni VBC and Jack Black before either of them were really anybody. It's – Funny to see, you know, again, and Sarah Silverman didn't really, you know, this was the beginnings of her career as well, and it's really funny to see her just doing a straight-up acting role in this that's not particularly comedic or anything like that, Um, and it's also funny because, so our July patron special was us doing The Golden Girls, uh, and I've continued to watch it because it's one of my favorite episodes. Do you remember the episode where Dorothy is needs to have an operation on her foot? Do you remember that? And she's scared of the hospital. Uh, yeah, I do. So at one point, a doctor comes in and says, oh, I'm your new doctor. Your regular doctor has been sued for malpractice, but don't worry, you'll be fine. Do you know who that doctor is played by? I do not remember. The doctor. Oh, <laughs> Robert Picardo. Yeah, okay. again, ten years before the show aired, so it's and playing essentially the same role. But it's it's and, the real question is, did he have the same hairline? No, he had hair in that episode. It's weird to watch, <laughs> huh? But uh, it was starting to recede, obviously. Um, yes, and of course, Ed Begley at this point had a career already. Um, but still. yeah, well, Ed, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the thing that like Star Trek Voyager, it's it's network television ness is showing a little bit now because. If this had been a syndicated television show, I don't necessarily. I mean, Sarah Silverman, yes, they would have had because yeah. Sarah Silverman was was basically no one at this point. Yeah, but, she just took a gig and you know happened to become very popular afterwards. But yeah, right. But like Ed Bakley, Ed Bakley Jr. was obviously a person of some renown at this point, and I don't think that they would have necessarily gotten Ed Bakley Jr. if this had been a syndicated television show. Yeah, uh, and I don't know. I think that like again, I mean, we we talk about this sometimes where when we talk about the first half of the two parter in in two two different episodes like it's hard to talk about it because so much of a you know so much of the first episode of a two-parter is set up and you know we don't know where any of this is going to go but in a certain sense it doesn't matter because what is really uh what is really interesting about this episode is just hey it's the voyager crew in 1996 and that's basically enough for me i don't really need anything else besides that but again, this is a moment where the show really wishes it was out in the Alpha Quadrant because if this was just Voyager going around the Alpha Quadrant and they and or maybe they're back near Earth and this happens, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes sense that we would have a time gate, but a time and space gate somehow feels like all right, you're trying a little too hard here. Um, again, yeah, I, a little bit. Yeah, I wish I, the show would just. You know, just just do it. But again, I think you know, I I will be curious to see how it handles the Borg stuff because that does feel like it will be more Delta Quadrant, especially because at that point the Alpha Quadrant really will be dealing with the Dominion. Yeah, I I, I we will leave that as an exercise sure. for the future. But I kind of I'm kind of with you, but I also think that um, 
you know, the episode is obviously not uh, what I would call poignant or anything yeah. like that or anywhere close to that. But there is, I mean, I think that there's a couple of ways that the show uses its own setting very well because I think that that scene where, you know, Earth appears on the view screen and yeah. they're all momentarily taken aback and realize they're home. I mean, I think that that yeah. works really well. And, you know, it's very quickly dispensed with, but. And they they don't really seem to be affected by the fact that they are around Earth, but it's you know three hundred years in their past. They don't really seem to be that affected by it. But at the same time, it's I think that I think that scene is used very well. And I don't know. I I kind of feel like the Voyager crew. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Has maybe felt a little uh, too incompetent at times. Mm. And there's a degree to which I like the very. Uh, the very quick realization of where they are, yeah. what they need to do, and they're just going to go do it. And uh, I don't know. I just I, I think it works well. I mean, I, there's nothing. This this is definitely the like turn your brain off Star yeah. Trek in a way, and uh, it's good turn your brain off Star Trek. Like there there there, there is a, a pleasure in just watching a fun show and. They are giving us a fun show. They're, yeah, they, they, yeah. They're, they're, again, like with, with The Swarm, it felt like there was too much crap. They were trying to do too much. Maybe I, and I think I said on that episode, I kind of wish that it would be a little less ambitious thematically. And this episode is a lot less ambitious thematically, but it's filling up that space with, again, the the ambitious plot of the episode, the fact that it is showing us some very different things and just... Having a rip roaring crazy time. People are shooting at them. There's, you know, they're trying to get away. There's chases. It's that kind of episode. Yeah, yeah. And I also think, I mean, I also think it's interesting that we, you know, we haven't talked about um, uh, what's his name, Braxton, Captain Braxton, as as a mm. character. And I think that there's an interesting uh, uh, kind of through line there, which is that um, he might be kind of incompetent. Like he seems yeah. like he's incompetent. Like, yeah, you know, he, he he gets the he, he as. Janeway says, you know, I'd be willing to sacrifice this ship, but not after a two-second, you know, two-second call. I need more information about that. If he were to exp- if he were to explain to Janeway and show the thing and show that it is inevitable and there is no other way and, you know, let her deal with that, she would make a very different choice. But it says he goes, you know, you're bad people. Lower your shields. I have to kill you. And doesn't realize <laughs> that that would cause a little problem. And... There's a there's a lack of like resourcefulness on his part because yeah. not only not only is he not very good at destroying Voyager and he indirectly causes the yeah. destruction of the solar system uh his actions he also gets broken by the 20th century and yeah. becomes a homeless crazy person. I don't I I am in no way saying that homelessness is a person's own fault. In the real world someone becomes homeless it is a series of Horrible and tragic situations that happen. Yes. At the same time, a 29th century Starfleet officer stranded in any situation with advanced technology you would think would have the training to get through it. I mean, hell, in the in basics, they were stranded on a primitive planet with, like, no technology, and they still managed to survive. So how can't he—how did he not figure out somebody to hawk a couple of wires to and, uh, and get an apartment— I know, really. It's like you. He has a. He assumedly has a fucking replicator. Yeah. Like, just 
make some money. I don't know. Like it just seems very strange to me. Like there's a there's a there's an entire uh there's an entire version of this episode which is the story of Captain yeah. Braxton slowly becoming unraveled and oh. I think I'm interested in that story, but at the same time it's okay that we don't see it because, you know, he's not a main character of the yeah. show. I don't know, it's funny to juxtapose him against Janeway and Chakotay because yeah. they seem incredibly competent by comparison well sir, we also don't know what kind of life uh braxton has led he's probably had a very cushy position and you know maybe this is a and not for nothing but a captain piloting it piloting a ship that only he has i mean he's doesn't have a crew but that's that's a different story um well, I think it would probably make sense that you mm. wouldn't want a time ship to have a bunch of people on it. That's like fair. that seems like you probably want to minimize the possibility for for damage to the timeline or whatever. Yeah, okay, that's uh, fair. I mean, I I can certainly imagine like if it had been like a normal ship with like two hundred people on it, like that would have been a you know. And also, like the episode just wouldn't have worked if that was the case because yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. really you know it's like oh well he's crazy but all right let's go find the other. You know, hundred. Let's go find the other hundred and ninety-eight people that are also on that ship, or something. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but it is true. I mean, like at some point, you know, Paris and Tuvok, you know, steal a car because they figure, you know, and Janeway explicitly says, like, you know, basically do what you got to do. Um, uh, they steal a pickup truck. Fair enough. Um, God. I mean, maybe Braxton tried to steal a car, immediately got caught, got arrested, and you know, things progressed from there. Well, I think that that you know, yeah. uh, you know, not not to get too uh, fanficy. Well, not fanficy. Not to get too like, not to spin things out that aren't necessarily supported by the episode. But you know, I do think it's interesting that like Captain Braxton is by himself and ends up a homeless person, uh, and you know, the rest of the Voyager crew yeah. has themselves to rely on. So that's part of it as well, I think. But they also like, are only there for a couple of days during the time we see him, and he is dealing with thirty years. I mean, I. Uh, Certainly, you know, 1996, sorry, certainly 1966 would be a different situation than 1996 or 2016, but without any identification or social security number of anything, it's probably hard to get around. Uh, that was a lot easier. Of in course, in 67 than yeah, it would yeah, have yeah. been in 1996, but yeah. Um, well, eventually I, I it would have become a, an issue, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Maybe things well, got difficult uh, in the 70s. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe the last thing to, to talk about before we wrap this episode up is, um, like, hasn't Harry Kim had the bridge before? Like, this episode makes a big deal about the yeah. fact that he finally has the captain's chair. But I think he has before. But I, 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 I guess I kind of read that as this is the first time he has to make, like, a real big decision. You know, if... He's been in the captain. Or like, or, the, or like, this is the first time that he has the captain's chair, and like, the captain and the first officer are actually physically leaving the ship. Yeah, and he has to deal with, uh, you know, do I disobey this order because it's what ne you know needs to be done? Do I do this now? Is this right? Do I? What are the risks of what's going on? I mean, he probably just hasn't had to deal with an actual, you know, maybe the times he's <laughs> had the bridge have been a little more routine. I, yeah, I, I could certainly see that interpretation of it. But I but I also think it's interesting that you say, like, he has to make a decision when he doesn't really make a decision. He makes a decision. Then Bellana goes, that's the wrong decision. And he says, you know what? You're right. <laughs> well, you know, she is the big sister. Even though he has the rank, she is the one who is a lot more 
competent and, and and thinks this situation a little better. I think she works a lot better under pressure than he does. And I don't know. I just always read that scene as like Starfleet. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and it also does turn out to have certain consequences. I guess my big question is why didn't they beam Ed Begley out of there while he was trying to? You know, while he was doing his fuck up stuff on the computer well they didn't know right like, but they, they knew he was doing something and they could figure like all right well let's get him out of here halfway through you know before he you know we need to and at the very least let's restrain this guy figure out how to get the time ship back like him out in the world at this point is not a good thing we'll bring him back afterwards he already knows everything so it's not like he's going to be compromised oh, oh you mean after they beam janeway and chakotay back yes yeah, i don't know i don't know why they don't because yeah. They need an episode to happen. They want the doctor down there. So yeah. <laughs> what does oh, that yeah. mean? We'll find out next week. And now the doctor is in a very, very different place, Like, which, again, I had figured was going to be the doctor's arc. He's eventually going to get more and more different types of adventures, but good for him. And also, I will just say that uh, this two-parter is very important for the doctor. Okay. <gasps> does he and Sarah Silverman fall in love? Yes. That, that is exactly what happens. Aww. All right, well, I think that's it for this episode of Trek About. If you have any thoughts on either of these episodes of Star Trek Voyager, please leave a comment on the post for this episode at trekaboutshow.com. As we mentioned before, Trek About is listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash trekaboutshow to give now. It also supports our other podcast, Tuning In. Uh, we are releasing a very important Tuning In this week in two <laughs> days on Thursday. Uh, we are talking about the episodes DPO and Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. And for those of you who are X-File fans, I think it used to be called X-Files. I've as seen in P-H-I-L-E. that. Uh, you will know that episode title probably, and you will know what episode we're talking about. Um, so check that out at tuninginshow.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Truck About. Next week, we are talking about, of course, Future Zen Part 2. That's not really a surprise. And Warlord. 